Thank you, Peter. Good morning, church. So good to be with you. Happy New Year. Uh, looking forward to starting this new sermon series with you called Can You See It? Uh, understanding the Kingdom of God. I believe, uh, and as a church leadership, we believe that the message of the Kingdom of God and the, the heaven, the new heavens, and, uh, is one of the primary messages of our Savior. And yet something that for many of us, we understand the term, or we think we understand it, but basic familiarity es- escapes us. And so today, and for the next seven weeks, we're going to be unpacking the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus really means by the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, and what does that mean for our lives today? As always, our prayer is that the words of Christ change us and mean something to how we live and how we encounter people around us. So let's pray and let's begin. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the opportunities to open your scriptures. We pray, Father, that your spirit will continue to, to just be with me as I proclaim your word to these people, and that as, as, as a church, Lord, that you would be present here, that your spirit would be heavy on us. And Father, that we pray that you would open us up, and that you'd open our ears and our eyes and mostly our hearts, that we would understand your scriptures in new ways, and that the scriptures would impact our journeys, Lord, that we might be disciples following after you. Or teach us what it means, the kingdom of God. In your name we pray. Amen. This is, can you see it week one? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And this series is going to be going week by week through the Beatitudes. As we seek to understand the kingdom of God, we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes, which is the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, because these are the ethics of the kingdom. If you want to understand what a place is, uh, you need to understand more than just what it proclaims to be. You need to experience the place, right? I mean, this is why we travel. This is why, uh, you know, just this week, Alaska Airlines opened up a route to Cuba, and some of my friends jumped on a plane. We, we've heard about it. We've seen pictures of it. We need to experience it. When I was just getting out of college, I had studied America. I had studied American travel literature. I thought I understood what it meant to be American. I mean, after all, I was 22. I had life figured out, right? And so I bought an atlas. There was these things called atlases. And I had a highlighter pen. And I would open the atlas. And every night, I would sit over my coffee. And I would just, hey, where will the road take me tomorrow? I spent six months in a van driving around the country. But what you think a place is, because it's a dot on the map, is utterly incapable of teaching you what the people are like when you get there. But when you get there, when the road unfolds and the trees in the northeast are, 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 are turning all colors of hue and, and the road is spinning around and you're pulling into these little towns and little gas stations and meeting people and hearing their stories, you understand the geography alters people. And if you want to understand what people are like, you need, you need to go there. Because once you go there, you'll understand some of how the geography has altered people's character. Because we are people of a place. And, and the kingdom of God in this series is going to be teaching us to be people of God's new kingdom. New kingdom. We want to be people of a place. It was interesting. We moved from Los Angeles to Seattle. We were taking birth classes, and we met this woman who was in Seattle but didn't care to be in Seattle. She said, you know, this place just drives me nuts. I mean, don't you find it ironic? She said, you know, the beacon of, of hope. Right next to I-5, there's the brand-new REI store. You know, that's, that's what Seattle wants to be, and she was lamenting this. But I was thinking about that this week as I was prepping this message. And being in Seattle doesn't mean you're somebody that, uh, that goes hiking. 
It doesn't mean naturally that you're somebody that, that understands the beauty of, the, of our natural area. It means that you might be able to experience it, but you've got to go there to experience it. You have to be people that are actually experiencing the stuff that we say that we value. And so as we turn into the scriptures this morning, as we look at, at what does Jesus mean in the, in the Beatitudes, what does he actually mean for us as disciples to be living into this kingdom of God mentality, not just when we die, but as a present reality, that Matthew 5 is going to be our, our, our instruction manual, that we want to be understanding what Jesus is talking about with the new kingdom. Jesus says, can you see it? Can you see it? I'm right here. And the kingdom of God is both a future hope and a present reality. And so we will study the Beatitudes as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, as we study all of what it looks like to be Christians that understand the kingdom of God, because the kingdom was what Jesus' message was. I mean, Jesus, as you just heard read for you, the end of Matthew 4, Jesus' ministry began with teaching about the kingdom. And then he healed people, and then he went up on a hill, and he gathered his disciples, and he sat among them, and he said, and this is what the kingdom principles are. And so Jesus says, I want you to to, to hear my words and live into the promises, because the Sermon on the Mount promises a life that can withstand anything, anything. And if you're like me, you turn to Matthew 5, you, hopefully you brought your Bibles today, we're going to be just spending a lot of the morning looking at the context of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and then ch- uh, verses 1, 2, and 3 of Matthew 5, but you, you read the Sermon on the Mount, you read the Beatitudes, and it's like, Jesus, how do we actually live it in this way? How do we actually do this? Is this just metaphorical, or how do we actually live this way? And it's so interesting to remember the historical context that Jesus preached this sermon, perhaps Jesus' best sermon, Matthew 5. He preached it at the actual confluence of the incarnation and human domination because Jesus was preaching this sermon at the time of human empire, the empire of Rome, the biggest empire humanity had ever seen. So he understood oppression. He was preaching it in Jerusalem outside the Sea of Galilee. I've stood on that hill. I've ridden my bike around that lake. He stood, likely there would have been Roman soldiers in the town below the hill. He could have pointed to them. He could have said, you you think you're enslaved. You think that that, that because there's no hope with Rome being over us. But Jesus says, there's a new reality. My reality. And so we don't need more more legalism and more religion to, to the Pharisees. And we don't need a political revolution necessarily, which were the zealots trying to, to advocate. Jesus says, you need more of me, the new kingdom. And as you understand my hope in your life, you will be changed. And this change becomes the message. We become the messengers when the hope of the kingdom resides in us. This was the message of the early church. This was their anthem as the church spread out from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and started to spread throughout the Mediterranean, they were teaching the kingdom of God and saying the hope for the world resides in the hope for my own heart. And as I understand Jesus working within me, as I understand my blessedness, even in my poor in spirit, Jesus will make me a messenger for him. Because personal transformation, friends, sets the stage for mass evangelism. Personal transformation sets the stage for mass evangelism. So which is it? Is this a Christianity of personal transformation? No. If we were just meant to articulate the values of the kingdom, we've become very self-centered people. 
I would, I would feed on Christ. I'd go live in a cave. It would just be about me and God. Or, or, or are we going to make a difference or not? Yes, but if we're out here making a difference and we're rallying and we're holding signs and we're advocating, but if we don't have Christ in us, we're, we're just a clanging gong. We're a messenger. And people burn out all the time because they're not feeding on Christ. They're just out here trying to make a difference in the world. A personal transformation here through the kingdom of God. Personal transformation sets the stage for mass evangelism. And so the hope that Jesus has for us is, as listeners this morning, as men and women, as young and old, as people saying, I want to feed on this, Jesus says, feed on it, and then you'll have food for the whole world. So that's as we begin this series, the Can You See It series. We're going to focus this morning on pretty simple, pretty simple ideas of the what and the where and the who of the kingdom of God and its new citizens. We're going to look at the who and, and the what and the where of the kingdom of God and, and hope that by the end that we, we've got some good news to hold on to because, friends, the church needs to be the good news. We have said that since the election, and no matter how you voted, left or right, no matter what you think about our political candidates, no matter what you see, when you open the newspapers, when you, when you look at what's going on in the world, we say, this is our time. This is our time for, for Christ to actually have changed us and for people to be encouraged. Man, those people saw something, and I want, I want to be more like them. So this is what the kingdom of God looks like as we kind of live into it. So let's start very simply here. If you have your outline, point number one, what is the kingdom of God? I mean, you can, let's just start at the beginning. What is the actual definition for the kingdom of God? There is no perfect definition. There is not a, a textbook to open and say, this is exactly what it means. Uh, we were using, let's use this uh, definition to get started this series. That the definition we'll use today is the free availability of God's rule and righteousness now to all humanity. This is what my friend Brad, who's leading the Bethany Initiative on Kingdom of God, he said, yeah, let's use that as our definition. It's the, it's the availability now to all humanity of the righteousness of Christ. That's what the definition is. But over and over again, Christ would just say, you want to see the kingdom, he's right here. It, I'm here, Jesus would say. My, my very presence, Jesus says, is the incarnation. And we're, we're mindful as we, we look all around us today that the kingdoms of this world will not satisfy. That the things that we are pursuing to give our life hope and meaning and purpose, that, that there's value there and Christ works within the desires of our heart. But if our value and our purpose is just the kingdoms of the earth, we will never be satisfied. We're always longing for more. We're always longing for more. And, and so the new kingdom, Jesus says, is, is the presence of my life and yours that will give your life hope. And so as you look at your Bibles here, as you look at the end of Matthew 4 and the beginning of Matthew 5, it's very interesting, the context for the Sermon of the Mount. Oftentimes we'll turn to Matthew 5, we'll try to lift the Beatitudes out as kind of the preamble to the Sermon of the Mount, and we want to look at these isolated statements. But before Jesus taught, he healed. Before he withdrew to teach, he was present with people, and his fame began to grow. And at the end of chapter 4, what's his message? It's the kingdom of God. He preached the kingdom of God. And, and then as he just, he, he wanted to touch people, he, he, he just, he heals people. Verse 24, verse 25, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him those who were ill with various diseases, suffering pain and demon-possessed and having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. 
because Christ's word heals people. And I understand there's a literal healing now and a metaphorical healing for most of us that we, we experience and we just, we, we divorce ourselves from the, from the power of Christ here. But before we hear the words, Jesus heals the people. And then you look at chapter five, verse one, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. It's very significant. The teacher sits, he's withdrawing. And in the ancient times when the rabbi would sit, it means we're gonna listen. So the rabbis would walk and we would follow the rabbis. But when the rabbis sat, we're supposed to pay attention because now the lessons would unfold. So Jesus is healed and he says, well, I have healing, I, I came for healing, he's not seated yet. When he's, when he's seated, he says, I, I, want you to, I want you to hear my words, because I want you to, not, to be people, not just be healed by me, but that can be, have some of this incarnation so that you can help heal others. Verse two, Jesus sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, scholars are divided. How big is the group around Jesus when he's teaching? When you hear disciples here, it's more than the 12. But Jesus intended the words of the Sermon of the Mount, the, the words of the Beatitude, he intended it to be for his followers. And so I'll say this morning because it's January. If you're here this morning and you're like, you know, I, I don't even know if I'm a follower yet, I will say, welcome. And I'll say, you're welcome to just come and listen and to see if God moves your heart. I will tell you this, the many people stop following Jesus, not because it's too hard, but because we as a church have made it too easy. And the Sermon on the Mount makes things difficult at a level. Because Jesus says, I've healed the people, I've been with the crowds, but my heart is for people to, to not just be saved, but be transformed in their salvation. And so he gathers people that are intent on hearing. And he says, these words are for you. And he opens his mouth, which in the Greek would be kind of a trigger for people that are hearing in the ancient world that the rabbi is teaching. There's some teaching that's going to be poured out. He opened his mouth and he taught him. One scholar I was reading this week, a guy by the name of Miles Ogberger, said this. He said, it's important that we not only recognize God's saving grace, but also his transforming grace, both his saving grace and his enabling grace. Because from the beginning, Jesus is saying, I want you to understand there's a heaven available, not by your purity, but by your following me. And as you, and you understand the incarnation living into you, Jesus says, that's where your hope will be. That's why he taught his people to pray. Pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And as disciples, as people trying to get up on the hill and trying to gather around our seated rabbi, where people constantly trying to understand what does Jesus mean by the kingdom and how do I live into it? And even the words there of the, of the, of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, we're confused oftentimes. What, is it just the future or, or is it meant to be a present reality? And Jesus would say, yes. Yes, he, he says that it's both. Because sometimes in the scriptures, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And sometimes he is talking about the future, when when all will be restored, when he will wipe every tear from our eyes, when heaven will be established here on earth. He says that is also the kingdom of God. But don't miss its present reality. Don't miss the fact that Jesus says, I want you to understand this now. 
The same scholar, Ogbert, said this, to make it solely the kingdom of God, to make it solely a present happening would minimize its greatness, and to make it only a future happening would destroy the meaning and authority of Jesus' present lordship. And so when are we meant to understand this, Jesus? When does this heaven of earth actually be something that we can apprehend and we can experience? And I want to believe that the kingdom is here. I want to believe that its goodness is capable, but it's so easy to be so discouraged. We are a people beaten down and discouraged. And yet the hope of the kingdom of God is meant to say, we are meant to understand this is a reality now. No one, no one teaches more about this than, than N.T. Wright. And he has this kind of long passage where I want to read to you. A lot of teaching this week because as we set the stage for the kingdom of God, it's really, really important that we understand what in the world is it. If this is the primary topic that Jesus preached about, this is the primary topic that Paul and Barnabas and the others, this is how the church grew, we need to understand what in the world it is. And so Wright says this, he says, this is a misunderstanding that that the kingdom of God will only be uh, afterlife in heaven. Wright says, heaven is God's space where full reality exists, close by our ordinary earthly reality and interlocking with it. One day heaven and earth will be joined together forever and the true state of affairs at present out of sight will be unveiled. It is a future reality. But we are to pray, says Wright, that God's kingdom will come And God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The life of heaven, the life of the realm where God is already king, is to become the life of the world, transforming the present earth into the place of beauty and delight of what God always intended. And those who follow Jesus are to begin to live by this rule here and now. That's the point of the Sermon of the Mount, Wright says. And these Beatitudes in particular, there are summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's promised future, because that future has arrived in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. It may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that it is, in fact, the right way up. Try and see it. Try and see it, says right. That's so beautiful here. We're supposed to live in the present in a way that will make sense of God's promised future. Man, how difficult is that? to live in such a way now of what God intends it to be then. This is the call of the disciples. This is the call. And again, if you're somebody, you're a a bottom-of-the-hill person this morning, honestly, thank you for being here. Because it doesn't happen unless we just go to Jesus first and we say, hey, you know what, I'm I'm in the valley. God, I, I need to be touched by you. I need to be healed by you. I've got, I've got a needle in my arm. I've got depression in my brain. My relationships are falling apart. Jesus, I, I want to be touched. I want to be healed. I, I've heard you speak. Jesus, I want to encounter you. And if we don't encounter Jesus in the valley, if we don't have a touch of Christ, then we're just becoming more religious. We have to believe that Jesus can touch us. We have to believe that Jesus can heal us. He has to be good news. And from that place, he withdraws and he goes up onto the mountain. And from that place, he sits down and says, and now for those who really want to follow me, I've got something for you to do. I need you to live now in a way in which the future will be unveiled. Because in your living, people will see me. In your discipleship, Jesus says, I want to actually use you. In your discipleship, people will see the values of the kingdom. And if you're like me, you're like, can we just stay down low? 
Could we just stay down here in the valley and just have Jesus kind of heal me? And Jesus, I need a fresh dose of you. Jesus, I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling overwhelmed. You know, name the, name the thing we're struggling with. But Jesus is always calling his followers up. He's always saying, now that I've touched you, I want you to be more than just saved by me. I want you to be, continue to be transformed by me. And so this becomes the disciples' walk, friends. This becomes the walk up the hill. And I will say it again. Many people stop believing in Christ and the power of the church, not because it's too hard, but because we've made it too easy. And so in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, this isn't easy to do. This is not easy to do. You're lonely in your marriage. Jesus says, I want you to serve her or him first. What? You're feeling, you're feeling lonely. Jesus says, I don't want you to turn towards the old idols. I want you to turn towards me. What? I, I, I'm feeling poor in spirit. Jesus is saying, exactly. What? No, I thought you would just come and make things better all the time. Jesus says, when you're poor in spirit is when you can actually experience me. Because at the end of yourself is the beginning when you take the discipleship journey up the hill to follow me. Another scholar who writes a lot about this, he, he connects it to what Paul says in Philippians 2, that our joy will be complete as we're united in both spirit and purpose, and we become these disciples of integrity, disciples that are actually living into our core values, and that our, our friendships reflect our values, and our jobs reflect our values, and the way we raise our kids reflect our values, and we're actually doing the stuff we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to head up the hill. And then we fall like Jack and Jill, and we go tumbling back down, and we're like, man, that's a really dark nursery rhyme, but I want to go back up. I want to be with Jesus. I know he's seated there, and I need more of him in my life. So, so this scholar, D.A. Carson, says this, cheap familiarity has robbed these beatitudes of their force, but renewed reflection on them not only highlights their transcendent moral stature, but forces us to examine ourselves to see if we ourselves are heirs of the kingdom. Certainly those who live by such norms cannot do so in secret. Theirs is not a religion of private experience only, but of public integrity, meekness, righteousness, purity, and mercy. The Sermon on the Mount must not simply be studied, but practiced and incorporated into the believer's life. Failure to make progress in this regard calls into doubt the validity of the individual's claims to be following Jesus at all. Ouch. People said sometimes to me, like, wow, <laughs> I had a neighbor. I had a neighbor, my neighbor, your pastor, your humble pastor, who's not always great at living the values of the kingdom. They said, I didn't know you were a pastor. And what they felt like they were saying was, I didn't know you were a Christian. Do the people around us know that we follow a new king? And that our hope comes not from the present reality and not just the future where when we die, we will worship God face to face, which we'll do that then. But that my present is changed because of God's presence now. This becomes like the secret force, the secret power that kind of, it fuels us, it encourages us. I got a hat from my kids at Christmas, and I love the story of this little clothing company in northern Hawaii. This couple of brothers, Kaimana Plemmer and his brother, it's called He is Greater Than I. I don't know if you've seen this logo around town, but they started this clothing company, He is Greater Than I. Can you see it? Like, I don't know. 
like forever I'm like Hecky or something. I don't know, some weird like surf brand. Not, I'm not that hip, so I didn't get it. But no, the he is greater than I. And they were studying John 3.30, where John says, he must become greater and I must become less. And so they made this shirt, and they made 12 of them, they spray painted stencils onto their t-shirts and started to wear it around the North Shore of Hawaii. They're like, I don't get it, but it's cool. And the whole idea with the brand, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of their finances and all this and that, but I, the, the story of the brand is fascinating to me. Because they started the brand because their hope was that people would ask, hey, tell me more. Our life is meant to be lived in such a way that people might say, hey, tell me more. How can you be so hopeful in the midst of what's going on? How can your marriage continue to thrive when, if you're like my marriage, it can feel really lonely sometimes? Hey, where is your hope come to just be invested with your children? Hey, I see you creating community with your roommates, and, and you guys are studying the Bible and having great dinner parties. Tell me more. Tell me more. He must become greater. I must become less. This is the values of the kingdom. Uh, the future promise, the present reality. Where is this? Where is this kingdom? This is the second point of our outline. This is what gets confusing because oftentimes in Scripture, it's just the, the future promise that we see. Paul writes in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're new citizens of a new heaven. Jesus himself says in John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And so oftentimes, we're raising our kids, we've been raised to believe that when we die, we'll head to the new kingdom. That'll be the place that we'll go then. And yet Jesus says the citizenship of this new kingdom transforms where we already live now. And this becomes a primary theme in the hope of this church, is that we both advocate for, for the way that God intended it to be someday, and in other parts of the world. We're deeply involved in Rwanda, and Uganda, and Costa Rica, and a soon-to-be-named other world part. We want to be a blessing there. We do. And then we're involved in the city, Union Gospel Mission, and uh, Jacob's Well, and, and, uh, and Vision House, and, and Community Breakfast on Aurora, and the Chaplains of Presence at the Junction. Like, we want to be a blessing there, and we want to be a blessing there, and then when, when we do that stuff, we say, and then I want to be a blessing here, too. And God says, no, the values of the kingdom will start here, here. It starts here, where I'm already at. In my singleness or my marriage, in my waiting to have kids or in my, I feel like I have too many kids, in my, I'm raising kids that I want to leave the house or I'm still raising my parents who are back with me in the house. Like wherever I'm at, Jesus says it starts here. And we're called to step into the city and make a difference that our, our faith is advocating for the powerless and we're, we're breaking down societal structures. We gotta do that work there. And we gotta head across the world to partner with people and say, the church in Seattle is with you, church in Rwanda. We're the same church. But if we don't start here, we've got no testimony. Where do you start? You start here. Again, it's more than just personal salvation. It's this transformation story where God wants to start with where we're at and continue to move us to be a blessing into all the ecosystems that he takes us. This is where the kingdom is because our geography is intimately connected to our character. Our geography is connected to our character. 
The, the places that I live right now is, is connected to my character, and God says, this is the place I want you to be influenced now. How easy is it to say, when we move, we'll get more involved with the church. Uh, when, when I have that next job, then I'll definitely be a better giver. Oh, well, as soon as the, the kids aren't young, I want to be more involved. When, or when I have kids, I want to disciple them to do this or that. Jesus, start here, today. The geography that I've already put you in. If you want to see what the kingdom of God looks like presently, the Christians of our community need to embody it. And without geography, a king is just a figurehead. Jesus says, I want to be the king of your kingdom, the place that I've given you today. Your home, your neighborhood, your job, your friends, your children, that's your kingdom. Jesus says, I want to be your king. I want to help you transform that space, and then together we'll, we'll partner, we'll, we'll tear down walls, we'll advocate for the powerless, but it's got to start here. It's got to start here. This is where, where we already live is a place where God wants us to change first. And towards that end, there's this wonderful book, a difficult book called Divine Conspiracy, where Dallas Willard lays out what this discipleship journey looks like. This is a manifesto of Christianity, a dense reading. And in Divine Conspiracy, Willard says this about the Beatitudes. He says, this work in, in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes in particular, says Willard, are not teachings on how to be blessed. They're not instructions to do anything. They do not indicate conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. No one is actually being told that they are better off for being poor or for mourning or being persecuted so that the conditions listed are recommended ways to well-being before God or man. He says, these are explanations and illustrations drawn from your immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship to Christ. They single out cases that provide proof that in him the rule of God from the heavens truly is available in life circumstances that are beyond all human hope. And he says, it's not a distant God, but a present king. Because your geography alters your intimacy. It's hard to have a great marriage if you're never around. It's hard to be an involved parent if you don't spend time with your child. It's hard to grow a community in your neighborhood or with your friends or with your leadership group if you don't spend time together. Our geography matters. And you think back in the garden and then sin enters the picture and God goes walking back into the garden. He's gone to the place where he's met with Adam and Eve before. And then God says this, this haunting question, this haunting question where God says, where are you? Because though you sinned, I still want to be with you. I still, I want to be near you. I, 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 want, to, I want you to see me face to face. And they say, well, we were hiding. Because the sin confuses us and tells us that we need to actually not be present with God. That, that our poor in spiritness means that we need to withdraw from one another. But our king comes looking for us. And Jesus says, I, I'm here with you. You're, you're, you're in when you're with me. You want to see the kingdom of God, says Jesus, look towards me. And so he's seated with the people he's already healed. He's already with them. It's like, I've touched you. I know your weak spots. I see where you're damaged. And yet still I'm calling you to follow me. And so on this discipleship journey, friends, we, we continue to just try to sit with Christ 
Not out of our perfection, not out of the fact that we've already arrived, but out of our brokenness, out of our weariness, out of our struggles, out of our, out of our poorness. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And Paul will use the same Greek word in Galatians 4, 9. It's a synonym of being miserable. It's, Luke translates it as, as kind of monetarily poor. It's that, but it's more than that. It's spiritually poor. It's people that know that, that without God, I'm, I'm nothing. So Jesus says, when you're spiritually poor, when you're down and out, when you're discouraged, come and be with me. I want to be with you. I want to touch you. Geography alters your intimacy. Come and be near me. Not when life is perfect or out of the fullness of your New Year's resolutions, but out of the places when you haven't arrived yet. I need to be with my king. And so, as Willard would paraphrase, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus is giving a blessing to those that are down and out. Jesus said, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion. Then there are the seriously crushed ones, the flunk outs and the dropouts and the burned outs, the broke and the broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the HIV positive and the herpes ridden, the brain damaged and the incurably ill, the barren and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, the children with parents not dying in the rest home, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved, or the emotionally dead, and on and on and on. To those, Jesus says, I want to be with you. Where is the kingdom? It's when you're with me, says Jesus. So be with me and take this discipleship journey where you're trying to spend more time in my presence because that will change the world. If you want to be a difference maker out across the world, Jesus says, be with me. If you want to be a difference maker in our city around race and reconciliation and justice, Jesus says, be with me. And that our personal transformation sets the stage for mass evangelism. What does this look like? Well, this looks really simple. One of my friends, he's taking Bibles one by one, year by year, and just going through the Bible and underlining things and writing notes. So that when his kids turn 18, he can give them the Bible. Hey, this was a guidebook to me. And he wants to give each one of his kids a Bible. His own father died before he had even met him. He says, all I have is the man's Bible. So I'm, I'm leaving this testimony of a Bible to my children. That's, that's one question. But if you were to leave your Bible for someone, what would it say? Jesus says, be with me. I want to be with you, not out of your perfection. But blessed are you when you're present with me. And so finally, here we turn to the third point of our outline. Who, who are the kingdom people? Who are the people that will be blessed as they understand the presence of Christ? Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is. It's a personal pronoun. My Bible teacher at school, Dale Brunan, Dale Bruner, he said about this possession pronoun, he says, this pronoun is precisely for them, for the spiritually poor, that the kingdom exists. Because we must constantly remind ourselves that the inaugural Beatitudes were first for people in bad situations, not for people with good attitudes. 
These aren't aspirational goals. We don't need to set goals about how do I become more poor in spirit. Jesus says, wherever you're at, be there and allow me to be present to you. This is where the hope is. Not out of your richness, but out of your poverty. And so all the hope that we need this year is embodied here in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed here is a, it's a difficult word, makarios, translating Greek, but it's the highest degree of fulfillment. You will be fulfilled as you're poor in spirit because then and only then, says Jesus, you will be aware that the kingdom of heaven is present. And so trying to make this practical, what is a couple steps? I, I want to live this Macarius life. I want to be blessed. I don't want to be empty. I don't want to be bankrupt. How do I live into these? Give me some steps. Give me something practical, Scott, to take into my week. This has to be living into our weeks. This has to be practical. So two very simple steps here as we look at the Beatitudes, and, and in particular, Matthew 5.3. The first step, the blessing step one, acknowledge the poverty Blessed are the poor in spirit means that we need to be Christians acknowledging the poverty. And that's the poverty in our life. And this happens as we're vulnerable and authentic. We are not perfect. We worship the one who is. So we don't have to have all the answers. But in our vulnerability, in our authenticity, I blew it. I was at the bottom of the hill. Jesus touched me. I was walking my way up. And then bam, I'm back into my anger. I'm back into my idols of addiction. I'm back into my self-centeredness. I'm back into my pride. Jesus says, acknowledge the poverty. You don't keep walking up the hill to be with him and pretending that you have it all right. But the followers that Jesus called were able to acknowledge the poverty. So be vulnerable and authentic. And then the second practical step here, blessing step two, is pursue the riches of the king. And as we pursue the riches, we begin to embody the kingdom. Friends, as we encounter the riches of Christ, our poverty is transformed. So we acknowledge the poverty and we pursue the riches of the king. And this is a mystery. And this is messy. And we have good days. And then the Lord says, but my blessings are new every morning. Yesterday was a bad day. You're, you're eight days into the new year and you've broken every re- resolution you have. Jesus says, good news. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Today is a new day, and so on this day, Jesus, I will acknowledge my poverty, and I'll pursue the riches of the king, because I know in encountering Jesus, and not running from him, but in being present to him, my poverty will be transformed. We are the people that Christ calls to be used for his glory on this earth, that the kingdom of heaven wouldn't be just something then, but it'd be something now. That we would be the hope that the world needs to see. And Dallas Willard says here in, in, in Divine Conspiracy, he writes, It's the littlest people without any of the character or qualifications humans insist are necessary are the only ones who can actually make the world work. It is how things are among them that determine the character of every age and place. And God gives them a certain radiance as one lights a lamp to shed its brilliance over everyone in the house. We are the littlest people. We are the little people that God says, this is how a, this is how a, a geography takes shape. When people start to not puff up out of pride, but they acknowledge their poverty and embody the values of the kingdom, it's the little people. And Jesus says, let your light shine. That your life would be so full of these, of these values of the kingdom, Jesus says, you will become a light to the nations. 
that we become here later, we're going to be preaching it all month long, that we become the light to our neighborhood. We become the light to our spouse. We become the light to our, to our kids. We become actual light in my poverty and my brokenness and the fact that I don't always get it right and oftentimes I don't get it right. Jesus says, let your light shine before men and women, before all the places I will send you. If you want to change the world, says Jesus, start with changing yourself. May this be our anthem. May this kingdom of God moment say that these values live in me and the stage for mass evangelism. We want to see the world transform. We want to see Seattle transform. But as disciples, we want to sit with our king and that our life from being present with his light, we would embody that light, that hope, that joy, that presence that the world desperately needs. This is our time. This is our hope. This is the power of the church, Christ living in us. Will you pray with me now? Father God, thank you so much for the encouragement that as you call your disciples, as you preach the kingdom of God, Lord, that you're, you're, you're preaching this mysterious and beautiful message that we have both a future hope and a present reality. And that hope lives in us. And we're meant to be transforming our cities and our neighborhoods and our cultures. But first, God, you want to transform us. And so, Lord, we pray this morning as we turn towards a time of communion that we just we can acknowledge our poverty and we can pursue the riches of your presence, Lord. We're mindful that all that we want to be, Lord, is, is still waiting to be written. And we know we've got a long way to go. Lord, we're somewhere from the valley to the mountain and we're all aware that there's a long way to go. But Father, we cling to this hope this morning. We cling to this promise. We cling to the reality that your light will live in us. Lord, we want to shine. And so in order to do that, Lord, we, we recognize we must first have your light shine into us. So light us up, Lord. May we experience your, your truth and your passion, your hope, your justice, saving us and transforming us step by step as we head up the hill to be with you. Lord, we want to be with you. In your great name we pray. Amen. I want to call our communion servers to stations. We have communion in both the sides and down front. Here at Bethany, the communion table is open to everyone. Not a Bethany thing, but a, hey, I want to follow Jesus thing. And if you want to follow Jesus today, Jesus says, acknowledge your poverty and know that you come to this table not out of your fullness, but out of your brokenness. And when you approach, Jesus says, I will be your light. I will be your hope. I will be your sustenance. I will be your strength for the journey. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took his bread, or in this case, gluten-free bread, because we want you gluten intolerance to feel like humans too. Jesus took that bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. This is my hope. This is my joy. This is my light. And then he lifted the cup. And maybe he lifted that cup and he said, this is my blood. This is my blood, and you're the people I love. Don't run. Be present with me. And then he passed it out to all of his best friends. Drink. It's not condemnation. It's forgiveness. Your geography alters your intimacy. Come and be near your king. When your heart is ready, like I said, we have stations on the side and the front. We have communion servers ready to serve you. We all come people of poverty, needing the light of Jesus. Let me pray over these elements. Father God, thank you for Communion Sunday. Thank you that you gave your body and you gave your blood and you gave us your hope and you gave us your light. Lord, we receive. 
we receive empty-handed today. We ask that you live in us. And all God's people said, amen.